It's Friday, November 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Beyond the election, the economy may still be caught up in gridlock, as it seems likely that Democrats will control the House and Republicans will control the Senate. Republicans have already signaled that if Joe Biden wins the presidency, they will prevent any major spending bill, even as the economy continues to suffer through the pandemic. Felix Salmon, chief financial correspondent at Axios, joins us for the upcoming gridlock. Next, coming into the election, it seemed that Democrats had a good chance at flipping the Senate. Well, the polls were wrong, and it looks like the chance has nearly faded. We're looking at two possible Senate runoff races in Georgia for Democrats to make gains, but it could be very difficult. Siobhan Hughes, Capitol Hill reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, doctors are beginning to figure out why some people have long-term symptoms from COVID-19. Called post-acute COVID or chronic COVID, many are continuing to deal with symptoms for weeks or months after they were expected to recover. These symptoms range from severe fatigue and brain fog to digestive problems and erratic heart rates. Sumathi Reddy, Wall Street Journal's Your Health columnist, joins us for what could be causing these long-term effects. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You're touching into something that, as you know, I have raged against. And I have raged against my own party not genuinely fighting to rein in spending and deficits and debt. Joining us now is Felix Salmon, chief financial correspondent at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Felix. A pleasure. I wanted to talk about what's going to happen in this next year after we move on from the election and we kind of go forward with all of this. It really seems like the Democrats are going to control the House. The Republicans are going to control the Senate still. Also, you know, there might be a couple changes there, but it seems like that's going to stick. Either way, it seems like we'll still continue to have this gridlock that we've been having with these divided houses. So, Felix, tell us how this is going to be affecting the economy. Yeah, it's going to have a massive effect on the economy and not a good one. You might have noticed that Donald Trump has not really been able to get any significant legislation through since the 2018 midterms and the blue wave. And that's precisely because the Democrats now control the House. And if you have one House of Congress opposite to what's in the White House, you often wind up with this thing called gridlock, which is basically nothing happens. And nothing happening is often good for the country in good times. You can just leave the country to do whatever it naturally does, which is often good. But in the middle of a pandemic, it is terrible. What you need in a pandemic is you need effective legislative response to the pandemic and you need money going to people who've been hurt by the pandemic. And that becomes much, much more difficult as we've seen with this stimulus bill that just hasn't happened with the negotiations between the House and Treasury and that kind of stuff. If we get what it looks like it's going to get, which is a Democratic White House and the Republican Senate, that's gridlock, but it's even worse gridlock because the Republican Senate is just not going to accept any kind of spending bill coming from Biden. Like Mitch McConnell is going to be drawing the line. He's going to be refusing to spend money on anything. He's going to suddenly get religion on fiscal (laughs) conservatism. He's going to suddenly care about deficits and it's going to be basically nothing will get past him. And that's the point right there, because Republicans have been very willing to go with President Trump on a range of things. Really, the fiscal conservative thing has kind of been thrown out the window 
during his tenure. But go back to when Obama was president. And as you mentioned, if Joe Biden takes the mantle there, they're going to put it all in lockdown right away. So just kind of having it on both sides for the Republicans there in the Senate. Mick Mulvaney, the former congressman turned White House chief of staff, actually came out not that long ago and said, Republicans, we really care about deficits when there's a Democrat in the White House, not so much when we're in the White House. (laughs) Ted Cruz just gave an interview to Jonathan Swan here at Axios on HBO saying exactly the same thing, that the minute there's a Democrat in the White House, Republicans are really, really going to start caring about the deficit, even though we are all seeing the COVID numbers. They're reaching 100,000 cases a day now, which is unprecedented. We need to spend money to fix this problem. And that looks like it's going to be really hard with a Democrat in the White House, so long as the Republicans hold the Senate. Let's talk a little bit more about that coronavirus recovery, because in your article, you you made special mention of all of this, of how the first wave of the coronavirus, we hit that with a bunch of stimulus right away. We knew that the problem was coming. We're kind of in this second wave of things. We're starting to see the long-term effects, layoffs at state and local governments, and you know a lot of companies that are making furloughs, permanent layoffs now. This is all showing that we need another round of stimulus, but they're going to be tightening things up. I think you had a stat in here that if things keep going the way they do, we're going to have millions more workers lose their jobs by the end of next year. So that was just as a result of the state and local bailout. The first priority that Joe Biden has said that he has coming in would be an emergency fiscal stimulus aimed largely at state and local governments, because they're the ones who were left out the last time around. They're the ones facing a massive fiscal crunch. And that's where your money goes furthest. His chief economic advisor, Jared Bernstein, has said this many times, that if you really want to boost the economy and help us get back to work again in the face of we have like 20 million people on unemployment right now, what you do is you help state and local governments. It's an absolute no-brainer. It's the equivalent of infrastructure week, but it happens automatically and easily. And if you don't do that, you are going to lose an extra 5 million jobs. And I just want to make one last call back to the election. As you mentioned at the end of your article, this might be the kind of unintended consequences of what the voters were doing. A lot of them might have voted for Joe Biden for president, but they stuck with their Republican candidates for Senate and maybe not what they wanted, but they're kind of creating this gridlock. You know, we knew Democrats wanted to control the Senate so they can start passing a bunch of things if Joe Biden were to become the president. So something that the voters kind of did to themselves, really. So the big thing now, it looks like, is going to come in December with the runoff elections in Georgia. It looks like there's going to be two Senate runoffs in Georgia. If the Democrats can somehow win both of those, then they get 50 seats in the Senate. They have Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker in the Senate, they control the Senate rather than Mitch McConnell. And suddenly stimulus is happening. Everything is coming up roses and Biden can start doing what he wants. So those two Senate runoffs in Georgia in December are probably the most important election that we will see for the next four years. Felix Salmon, chief financial correspondent at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
the other one is between Republican Senator David Perdue and Democrat John Ossoff. If John Ossoff can pull David Perdue down below that 50% mark, that race will go to a runoff as well. Joining us now is Siobhan Hughes, Capitol Hill reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Siobhan. Good to be here. Wanted to get an update on the elections. The Senate was something that a lot of people were focusing on. We've already kind of talked about how the polls were wrong again, or the races weren't as tight as we thought. You know, there was a lot of talk about Democrats possibly picking up a lot of Senate seats, possibly flipping the Senate. It doesn't look like that's going to happen now, but there are some pickups that the Democrats did get, and there's still a few races that we have yet to call on this. So Siobhan, tell us a little bit about what's going on in the Senate. So right now, the Senate stands at an even 48-48, 48 for Democrats, 48 for Republicans. Democrats picked up a net one seat because they won seats in Colorado and Arizona, but they lost a seat in Alabama. So that's where you get the net one. There are four races that are outstanding. One in Alaska, where the Republican Dan Sullivan is expected to win, and one in North Carolina, where that Republican Tom Tillis is expected to win. So two holds. The focus now is on two Georgia Senate races. One of them is already going to go to a runoff next year. That's the one featuring Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, who is defending that seat. The other one is between Republican Senator David Perdue and Democrat John Ossoff. If John Ossoff can pull David Perdue down below that 50% mark, that race will go to a runoff as well. If both races go to a runoff, and if Democrats pick up both seats, Democrats would have 50 seats total, which if Joe Biden becomes the president means that Democrats would be in control. But that's a very, very narrow pathway for Democrats to climb. And already you hear Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell sounding confident that he is going to be the majority leader next year. You know, I mentioned the polls and how wrong they were or how off they were. What do polls say about these two races, at least? I mean, if they're going into runoffs, they're already really tight races to begin with. So going into this, the polls did show that these were going to be very tight races, at least especially in the case of David Perdue. He had started out in the polls a little bit ahead, and then in the public polls going into this, he was less than a percentage point behind, so well within the margin of error and the point that suggested it was a dead heat. We now have a different kind of poll in the form of the fact that people have now voted and we are seeing those votes start to come in. Currently, we have David Perdue at about the 50% mark with votes still to be counted on an absentee basis. We're looking in particular at those Atlanta suburbs. And that compares to about 47.7% for the Democrat, John Ossoff, with the Libertarian at about two percentage points. So a very, very close race there. How were Democrats looking in the House? That was another one where they said, you know, there was a possibility of them gaining seats. It actually looks like they lost a few seats. So what's going on in the House of Representatives? The races aren't fully called yet, but yes, Democrats were sure they were going to pick up seats, maybe on the order of about 10 seats this cycle. And instead, Democrats are losing seats down by about seven, according to our last count. You're seeing Democrats like Joe Cunningham in South Carolina having lost in suburban areas like outside of St. Louis and Wagner's seat in Missouri. She held on to that seat, which Democrats had thought they were going to be able to flip. 
in New York State. Max Rose was not looking likely to keep the Democratic seat. Also, Anthony Brindisi in a more western part of the state, not looking likely to keep his seat. So this was not a good election for Democrats. And as we speak, the House Democrats are in the middle of a private conference call where you have to be sure they are hashing these issues out. And it's probably not very pretty. So as you mentioned, again, this kind of leaves us with the two houses divided again, just as we've had this past four years of President Trump. So whoever comes in, it'll be pretty difficult to get anything done again, just as we've been going through. It's going to be really hard to get anything done. And because the outcome in the Senate is uncertain, we don't know exactly what's going to be possible. But whatever it is, it's going to be a lot less ambitious than what Democrats were thinking. Democrats were already planning for a big coronavirus relief package early next year. They had been planning to do major legislation on climate change. And you're seeing those be scaled back. I'm hearing people talk about maybe an infrastructure package that has eluded both parties for so long, maybe something on broadband. I'm starting to hear with expectations that Joe Biden is likely to be the victor. Is there anything that he could do through executive action? Could he take money that Congress has already appropriated it and repurpose it? It wouldn't be nearly enough as what Democrats are hoping to achieve through a COVID aid bill, but they're starting to explore alternative pathways. Siobhan Hughes, Capitol Hill reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Good to be here. Some of them, they're developing new symptoms weeks later, and these symptoms will persist for months. And some patients are going on for now six, seven, eight months. And in others, they're actually getting worse. Joining us now is Sumathi Reddy, Wall Street Journal's Your Health columnist. Thanks for joining us, Sumathi. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about these long-haul COVID patients, people that are experiencing symptoms for weeks, maybe months after they were expected to recover. You know, they say mild, normal cases of COVID-19 can last you about two weeks before you recover. But this is part of what this novel coronavirus is. We're finding out that everybody's responding to this differently. And a lot of times people are experiencing these long symptoms of severe fatigue, cognitive issues, memory loss. They call it brain fog. People are experiencing digestive problems, erratic heart rates. There, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is going into this. So, Sumathi, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning of these long-term effects people are experiencing. It's a really interesting phenomenon. So you have people who, in many cases, their sort of acute COVID, their initial COVID, isn't that bad. Not everyone, but in just in many cases. So, you know, they're sick for a couple of weeks. They think they've recovered or feel better. Only they haven't. So for some of them, they're developing new symptoms weeks later, and they, these symptoms will persist for months. And some patients are going on for now six, seven, eight months. And in others, they're actually getting worse. So what was sort of a mild case of COVID initially has now evolved into a sort of chronic condition. They're developing new and even worsening symptoms, you know, months later and really not getting any better. You spoke to a lot of people that are these long haulers that are experiencing these types of symptoms. And I think one of the people you spoke to put it best, and I can just feel the frustration of it. They said, I feel like there has to be some sort of next step because I'm not ready to accept that this is my new reality. Basically, like there has to be this point where I get over it. You know, it can't be like this forever. 
Um, in many cases, these are young and extremely healthy people. I mean, I've interviewed dozens of them over the past four months, and I've interviewed marathon runners, I've interviewed avid skiers, surfers. I mean, these are people who were extremely active and athletic beforehand. Again, that's not everyone, but it seems like a large percentage of them are. So to go from having no chronic conditions to being young and healthy and active to basically being debilitated to the point where a lot of them can't walk more than five blocks down the street or even at all without a wheelchair or a cane or something to support them. You know, it's quite life transforming and obviously extremely frustrating. There was a recent study of more than 4,000 COVID patients, and they found out that about 10% of those, they were 18 to 49, struggled with symptoms for four weeks after becoming sick. That's just one part of it. You know, there's people that are obviously experiencing things longer than that. Those numbers drop off. And the sort of the rough estimate that you get from a lot of different places is that this affects, this seems to affect about 10 to 15% of the population, or at least those are the people that are still sick after a month. It's hard to know how many of them get better. I mean, according to that one sort of symptom tracker, it seemed to drop by about half so that by two months, you had about four or 5% of people that were still sick. And then after three months, it was down to two to three percent. But there is a lot of criticism from sort of patient groups about that particular app just because it's a daily app. So obviously some people, particularly if they're really sick, get sick of sort of logging on every day. They might just stop doing the app. That doesn't mean they're better or recovered, but it's translated that way. So probably those numbers are a very conservative estimate. There's other long-term symptoms associated with other viral outbreaks, things like SARS and MERS and, and all that. But what makes COVID different is all the different organs that it can affect. And the leading explanation for this that doctors really think why people get affected in so many different ways and and then get these longer symptoms is that they think it has a lot to do with inflammation. Sort of the leading theory is that inflammation and possibly the body has an autoimmune response. So it's sort of attacking its own tissue and organs. That might be what's driving the damage. You know, it's also obviously under investigation and being researched, but it's unclear whether that's being driven by sort of viral fragments that are left in the body that aren't enough for anyone to be infectious, but that are triggering inflammation and sort of an autoimmune response, or if there's actual virus, viral traces, like actually lodged in a different part of the body that could be kind of reactivating almost like a dormant virus and causing symptoms. A lot of patients do complain of sort of like cyclical symptoms, like feeling better for a couple of weeks and then relapsing and feeling sick. So that sort of theory might jive with that. Even children that come down with COVID-19 in some cases are getting some longer term effects. A lot of that has to do with gastrointestinal stuff, headaches, shortness of breath, things like that. I've talked to patients who have severe GI issues, severe cognitive issues, brain fog, rashes, hair loss, very high heart rate, just very multi-system symptoms. And, and one of the leading sort of theories is that these people are developing dysautonomia, which is sort of a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. And it's an umbrella term, and it's commonly triggered by viruses. So not just COVID, but it's, it's triggered by influenza or SARS or other things. And it affects different organ systems. So it can affect your breathing, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your digestion. So that's some of these patients are starting to sort of get a diagnosed and treated for that. Sumathi Reddy, Wall Street Journal's Your Health columnist. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.